Morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. My name is Ben Floyd. I'm Head of Execution Services here at Coinbase and I will be your host for today. As usual, we have some of the smartest minds in crypto on the call and it's my job to help navigate through the important topics of the week. We are recording at 11 a.m. Eastern, so please keep this in mind if you're listening later in the day. A slight change to the schedule this morning. We have the fantastic John D'Agostino with us to run through the AMA conference that was recently in New York and also provide an update on his recent trips to the UAE, which I think you'll agree is very topical at the moment. We'll then pass it across to Josh to run through the market update covering the missed DCG payment and a focus on Ledger, and then some of the standout performers. David's gonna run us through macro, most notably the debt ceiling, which is hotting up. And then we'll finish off with Greg, who will speak about what's been happening on the exchange and the institutional trading desk. There is no Sid this week. He's off on a well-earned vacation, but we'll have a double set of Web3 next week from him when he's back. But without further ado, we'll get started with John. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you here. So John has a very impressive background. He's a, he's a senior advisor at Coinbase, and he's the chairman of the U.S. Asset Management Committee for the Department for International Trade. Educated at Oxford HBS, serves on the board of directors of a number of hedge funds, both traditional and crypto, that number AUM in the tens of billions. And quite a fun one, he's subject of the book Rigged, the true story of an Ivy League kid who changed the world of oil, which is about the journey helping set up the Dubai Mercantile Exchange, which I think is probably very relevant. And well, I'm sure we'll come back to that a little later in our conversation. But John, going to, to AMA, I guess like first first things first, like what is AMA and what is that? What does the, the acronym stand for? Sure. AMA stands for the Alternative Investment Management Association. Um, they're, uh, I believe, a nonprofit. I, I think they're a nonprofit, but they're. Uh, I think. I think it's fair to say they're one of, if not the largest, industry working group and lobbying group for um, asset management. So uh, their members include. I think they have nine thousand members. It include things like hedge funds, private equity, VC, banks, law firms, anyone in and around the uh, asset management ecosystem, specifically for alternatives. Uh, and I think, I think I have over 9,000 members and uh, they were started in the UK, but now they're all over the world and they have their base, big base of operations here in the US and UK. Amazing. And so you've been at the, the AMA conference for, for many, many years now. I'm curious, like, what were yeah. your reflections for, from the conference from, yeah. from this year? Yeah, so, so the, the, the background just briefly is, uh, so AMA um, never had a digital asset focus. And... Um, as, as you mentioned before, I, I was at Coinbase. I, I served on the boards of directors of some large funds, including some digital asset funds, cryptocurrency funds. And about uh, six, seven years ago, I started um, just a call. It was really just a call, quite frankly. There were all these different crypto groups, and and I started sort of the old guy call. Like we we had basically just all the big accounting firms, audit firms, and it was this bore. I called it the boring crypto call. And it was just about dealing with the issues I had to face as a board member, really boring tax valuation, accounting, audit issues, legal issues. And I was trying to get all like the TradFi crossover people at the big law firms and accounting firms. And that call kind of grew and grew and grew. And it got to like four or 500 people and I couldn't handle anymore. And I knew the aim of folks really well. And that's sort of where something like that belongs. That's what they're really good at. So I called my friend there and, and, and she was wonderful, Michelle Noyes, and she said, well, well, we'll take it over. And so they took it over. I co-run it with them. Um, I don't work for AMA, but I'm a big fan. I think um, hedge funds should become members of AMA. It's a very cost-effective way to stay on top of things. They produce a lot of industry standard documents. They're doing uh, ones for crypto now. And those really get filtered out through the community of not just funds, but also all the allocators. So any, any um, 
clients of Coinbase or any, any clients in general, uh, anyone in, in asset management world in crypto who wants to raise money from institutional allocators, they will be using AMA standards. So, so knowing what they are and being able to participate and contribute into their development, which is what AMA does, it takes in feedback from the community, uh, is crucially important. And so that uh, digital asset working group that, that, we, that I turned over as a phone call, really, and they made, they made it into this big thing, we now have a huge conference every year that, that I, I help co-run uh, with AMA. Very, very cool. I, I didn't know that it was called The Boring Call. That's, uh, it's not, now it's called DOG. Now it's Digital Asset Working Group. Now it's AIM a DOG. That's much cooler. I called it The Boring Crypto Call back then. I, I mean, it's a little bit cooler. I guess it's also like towards <laughs> like the, the the kind of pets, Doge, et cetera, et cetera. So it almost kind of fits, fits pretty well, actually. Mm, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and then I'm curious, like, so over the years with regards to digital assets, like, how have you seen the participants change? So you, you hopefully seeing like bigger funds and endowments and, and allocators. Oh, yeah. How how's how's that kind of? Progressing? No question. Look, I, I mean, crypto's been been kind of wondering when it, when when will institutional capital come in? Um, for me, as my, my background, I was uh, formerly a head of strategy for NYMEX, which was a derivatives exchange. I actually think that the journey of institutional adoption of crypto is incredibly accelerated. Like, I think back to how long it took institutions to trade derivatives, even like crude oil derivatives, like that were listed at the NYMEX and fully registered. Like, it, these things take, unfortunately, they take decades of acceptance. Like I'll, I'll just tell a very brief story. I remember years ago, we launched a jet fuel contract, jet fuel futures contract with the NYMEX. And we were trying to get, research was trying to get airlines to hedge. Very natural, right? That just seems so obvious. Greg's probably nodding. Like as a trader, you're short jet fuel. Of course you want to use this as a hedge, right? Agricultural firms have been doing this for years. Futures actually predate equities because it started with grain, uh, forward contracts for grain. So we're on the phone with these airlines and they're like, well, yeah, we don't trade derivatives. That's not what we do for a living. We, we don't speculate. And we're like, no, yeah, you do. If you're short the physical commodity, you're speculating. If you use the derivative, you're not. And these aren't dumb people, Ben. These are very smart people. They're CFOs of public companies. It just takes time. It's, it's a cultural as much as technical issue. And so I actually think the, the adoption of, 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 of digital assets uh, for institutional investors has been extraordinarily fast. I know it's not as fast as people want, um, but to see in like less than really five years to go from uh, still a very nascent technology and asset class to having uh, you know, ERS, TRS, you know, pension funds, usually this takes decades for a new asset class to get into pension funds. So, so I know we want to speed it up. It is happening. Things like FTX and others kind of slow down that process. But there is no question that, you know, if we group, there's two types of institutional investors. There's alpha producers, uh, like, like hedge funds that are paid to produce alpha. They're, they have no choice but to, to, to embrace new, new sources of alpha, like digital asset trading. And then there's um, uh, asset owners, that, that one term of, of art for them. And these are the, you know, the source. These are pension sovereigns. Um, their job is to be very slow moving. That's kind of how they, they think. And they think in terms of you know, 10, 20, in some case, even 50 year investment horizons. Um, and they're doing the work. They're getting into the asset class. Firms like Coinbase dramatically accelerate that process because it's, it's transparent and registered and regulated. Um, and, uh, but it is, unfortunately, for those asset owners, it is a naturally slow process. Interesting. And then what can we as an industry do to help them on board and come into the space? You know, I think a lot of it is, is communication. Um, I think uh, our, our, our industry um, is making some of the same mistakes that I think the hedge fund industry made uh, 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, sometimes I'll be quite honest, but we, we choose the wrong people to be our spokespersons. 
um, and and that scares off the that scares off the the kind of staid, boring institutional allocator class. Um, I think we have to do a better job of of simplifying these concepts. Um, uh, we, um, we, we need to do, uh, just, con I think, continue the slog of institutionalization and just make these, make the, the front ends more accessible. Um, you know, your average trader, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll concede to Greg on this, but your average trader, you know, they have you know, 15 screens on their desk and every single inch of that desk space is taken. And so it's valuable desk space. So you, you screen space. So you have to figure out ways to make these products integrate better into the rest of their portfolio and their existing systems. Um, and so we just have to, we have to understand how these trading decisions, these investment decisions are made. And we have to try to do our best to accommodate the, those processes. They will slowly change over time. They will accommodate the new way of doing things, but you have to meet people in the middle until that technical transformation really occurs. I got my start when the floor of the, and again, we're not talking about the 1960s. We're talking about like the mid 2000s. The, the floor of the NYMEX, the most valuable commodity in the world, crude oil, was still traded by 860 screaming men and women throwing hand signals at each other like the movie Trading Places. It was only like 2008, 2009 that that was moved to electronic trading, probably 20 years later than it should have. So these, these legacy systems, they're really resilient for a variety of reasons, some bad reasons, just inertia, uh, fear of change, uh, you know, not corruption, that's the wrong word, but like just you know, it's conflicted self-interest, um, that keeps things the same way. But also, let's face it, I mean, these systems worked. You know, I, I joined the NYMEX fresh out of business school thinking I'm going to change everything. And I'm staring at a trillion dollar marketplace that, that, that prices the world's most valuable commodity using screaming hand signals and paper tickets. The problem was that it worked. There were very few trade breaks. The system worked. And so it's, it's, it's tough to, to change a critically important system uh, because the fear of it not working with some new alternative way of thinking um, would disrupt an entire global market. Uh, and so there's valid reasons to be concerned about changing these critical systems. And we have to just continue to prove that this new technology um, is as stable and as reliable as the, and even more so and much more efficient than the existing technology. Yeah, that, 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 make, that makes a ton of sense. So I guess like along that thread, kind of talking about kind of valuable commodities, um, there's many of those in the Middle East. You spend a lot of time in the UAE. It feels like you've been traveling a, a ton in the last, uh, well, actually, yeah. years to be yeah. fair. Um, yeah. I'm curious, like, what is, what, what is the outlook for crypto in, in, in the UAE and the Middle East and abroad, do you think? I mean, you would never know it's sitting here in the U.S. So if you ever, um, if you ever, uh, if you ever get, if you're in crypto and you ever get depressed about the way that um, uh, we're thinking about, our government's thinking about crypto, um, you know, try to travel outside to the rest of the world. I would say, I would say, I look in my, in my career. There's always been, every time you have an exotic asset class, whether it's derivatives, swaps, swaptions, whatever it is. My whole career has been kind of an idiosyncratic asset classes. There's always been differences in how the U.S. and the rest of the world regulate these, regulates them, and and those differences. The U.S. tends to be more conservative. We're the most liquid capital market in the world. We're the, we're the bellwether for the entire planet in terms of safety and security. And so we can afford to be a little more conservative. We always have been. And so back in the day, there used to be this NYMEX ICE Henry Hub natural gas arbitrage because of a nuance in the way the UK would regulate derivatives in the US. There's always been these little nuances. Um, there's never been, in my experience, a wider spread. And so when you travel to Latin America, Europe, uh, certainly the Middle East, um, and even Asia, you know, despite, despite China's official ban, they're, they're allowing Hong Kong to be a, um, uh, a port for this activity. Um, there's, uh, it, it ranges from, I'd say, neutral to incredibly positive. 
uh, versus versus kind of the opposite here. So um, so the Middle East, I'd say, is at the, is the far end of that extreme in terms of positive embracing of this technology, both from a uh, wanting to experiment with metaverse and NFT activity, but also just embedding it into government processes and using blockchain to make government even more efficient, which is just kind of shockingly efficient there. Um, and so uh, you, you get off the plane there and you're in a world where there's incredible excitement about how this technology can do everything from help with you know, th these amazing social good projects like you know, banking the unbanked or uh, digital identity, um, but also uh, an, a, a willingness to experiment with some of the outer edge use cases and, and a willingness to fail at those outer edge use cases to see where this can take, um, where this technology can take them in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, consumer outreach. Um, so from a government level to a commercial level to a, um, to a consumer retail branding level, it's, it's um, extremely, they're extremely interested. They're, the regulatory environment mirrors that, that interest. And so you see, um, I think, an attempt to have very reasonable, measured, but um, innovation-friendly regulatory environment and, and a rule set to match. Uh, so you know, the UAE is a fascinating place. I've been going there for 20 years. Um, I've always believed that, you know, I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but geopolitically, it serves a very unique place, which is um, kind of like I think of the UAE as kind of Switzerland 2.0. Uh, so if you think of the role that Switzerland played post-World War II um, to be a place where finance can meet, where negotiations can happen behind the scenes, where governments can still meet, if you think of the world as kind of having a, a Cold War 2.0, um, I think the UAE serves that modern role. Uh, you know, one case in point, like when we swapped for um, our, a political prisoner with Russia recently, Brittany Grenier, we, we did it in Dubai. So I think there's um, uh, much smarter people than me at the UK consulate and other places where, where I have the luxury of, of hearing their voices, uh, you know, agree with that sentiment. So if you believe that, then the, the role of the UAE as a financial center is going to be compounded. Um, and so uh, they embrace that position. And so they're seeking to be a center, a hub of innovation. So I think it's not just the UAE. I think we're seeing with the Mika rule in, in the EU, uh, certainly the, the UK has done a bit of a turnabout uh, going, going from, I think, like negative to neutral to slightly positive. Um, Latin America, uh, same way. Uh, but if you think the UAE, I think, is unique, somewhat unique in that it's, it's a, a, a safe, relatively safe, efficient onboarding ramp for up to three billion people. Uh, in, in MENA and Asia, and then um, uh, and you've got that coverage for rest of world, and then you've got uh, you know, so you solve for EU coverage either in the Caribbean as, as Coinbase is doing, or maybe in the UK as Coinbase is also doing, and so you can optimize for a kind of global coverage with a minimum viable pr footprint that includes places like the Caribbean, UK, um, and, uh, and and UAE. Very very interesting, and there was. Uh... A fantastic paper that, that John wrote on that we'll link to in the show notes about that neutrality, which was was very kind of eye opening about kind of what the the future could look like in that region. So I certainly encourage everybody to to take a look. Yes, yeah, not um, as good as the stuff David writes, but uh, but I gave I gave my amateur my amateur research attempt. So David, you got to critique that for me later on. I'm sure I'm sure he will. Um, and then just final final question, John. Um, I guess like you've done this uh kind of bringing kind of either new asset classes or new trade a new way of trading something to that region in the past are there any similarities yeah. from your from your time with the, the dma yeah yeah look i'm really i'm really honored like it's really awesome to be working uh for coinbase on this because I, I've, I've gotten to bring uh two exchanges to the middle east and um uh, there's a ton of similarities and i think i think actually crypto would do well to look at the evolution of derivatives trading over time both in the us and globally i just had, had breakfast with a with, with a with a, a, an attorney who used to 
uh, lobby on behalf of the derivatives industry 15 years ago. And uh, there, was a, there was an active conversation. You guys might not remember, some of you may be too young, Amaranth, when Amaranth collapsed. There was a very active conversation uh, around the time in the government why do we even need commodity derivatives? Like, what, what's the point of this this market that like has like a, a sixty, a ten to fifteen thousand time notional value of the physical underlying? Isn't this all just useless speculation? And fortunately, you know, saner heads prevailed, uh, and there was a realization that 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 this 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 speculative activity, because a, a big chunk of it is speculative activity. You need the specs. Anyone who's studied market formation and market structure understands if you only have a market of commercial users, hedgers on either side, you don't have a viable market because there tends to be a bid-ass spread that's too wide. And you need people with diverse interests. You need hedgers. You need speculators. You need retail. You need institutional. If you don't have a broad and deep market of multiple participants who are entering a market for multiple for various reasons, you do not have a liquid market. If all you have are commercial hedgers and users and something happens to that market, everything collapses, the market freezes up. And so speculators are not the enemy. Um, we went through a lot of discussion at the NYMEX around the role of hedge funds. We did a ton of research on this and we found that, that speculative traders like hedge funds, alpha seekers, they don't cause price movements. They exacerbate them, no question. They exacerbate them on the upside and downside, but they're not the ultimate cause of them. And so this fear of derivatives, this fear of complex instruments, that was very valuable. They tried to kill the entire commodity derivatives market post-Amaranth. And so I think we can learn from how we walked government through the value of these markets, why they exist, the function they serve. Um, and I think some of that's very, very uh, uh, analogous to what we're going through now with crypto. Um, when, I, when we took the NYMEX over to Dubai, um, and we had this very simple thesis of you know, crude oil benchmark, which back then was WTI, West Texas Intermediate, which was a type of crude that only represented a small percentage of the global supply of crude. Our, our thesis was most of the world's crude is what's called sour crude. That comes out of the Middle East. West Texas Intermediate was sweet. And our point was, this means a different type of crude. Our point was that this pricing mechanism should probably also exist where the oil comes from. And they really embraced that. And you had this wonderful partnership between the U.S. and the Middle Eastern country where the U.S., I'm kind of getting nostalgic about this, we were exporting principles of capitalism and they were embracing them in their own way in this very cooperative manner. I see the same thing happening with digital assets. And I see the way um, places in the Middle East like the UAE, they want, they want you know, the technology and the, the capital markets innovation coming from the U.S. And they want to partner with us on this in true in true actual partnership. So, you know, I love exchanges. I think they are this critically important piece of financial infrastructure that kind of like nobody really, they think of them as social utilities, but without them, if you don't have price discovery, everything grinds to a halt, right? You can't lend, you can't borrow, you can't do anything. And so establishing an exchange in the Middle East um, is really a wonderful partnership. Uh, and this next generation of asset, which is going to be blockchain-based and, and digital-based, um, I think it's awesome that, that, that Coinbase is, 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 is there and, um, and, and partnering with the government to, uh, or registering with the government to, to make that happen. Amazing. John, that, that, was, yeah. that was awesome. It's great to get kind of an insider's view there of what's happening, especially with the kind of the background and context you have there. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be a more, more happening in, in that world. So uh, no doubt we'll, we'll try and get you back on uh, in the future as well. Thanks so much, Ben. Perfect. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So moving on to the market update. Um, Josh, over to you. What has been happening in the last seven or so days? 
Yep, tough fact to follow, uh, but thank you, Ben. Uh, crypto markets in both BTC and ETH have hit an eerie period of uh, what feels like exceptional calm with both BTC and ETH hitting its tightest weekly trading range since actually the start of the year. Um, and I just calculated that by taking the spread between the high and the low cl closing prices daily. Um, so looking at the weekly year-to-date data, BTC saw its lowest trading range last week at $632. Um, which kept BTC stubbornly trading in the mid-27,000 range for most of the week. Um, so to put this in context, uh, this week's $632 range, um, the average range thus far has actually been over $2,030. And so similarly, when we, when we look at ETH, um, last week's trading range was an astonishingly tight $29, uh, making last week the tightest trading range we've seen in ETH year-to-date by a fair margin. Um, volatility is also telling us an interesting story. So when we look at BTC and ETH, uh, realized 30-day volatilities as well, they're well below their averages with BTC and ETH both close to, call it, I think it's like 36%. Um, and ETH volatility, which typically trends higher than BTC, is currently showing a near zero spread to BTC realized vol as well. Um, and looking at implied volatility, for instance, on Deribit at 47% for BTC and 46% ETH, uh, we kind of see that the market seems to be in a complacent place. Um, a classic market phrase I think we all know is sell in May and go away, uh, which illustrates some expectation that typically from May to October, uh, we should see seasonally weaker performance amidst quieter activity and just some general like an apathetic mood in markets. Um, but in asset classes, volatiles, crypto, I don't think mundane and boring are typical descriptors here. And I don't believe we'll stay in these calm waters for too long. Um, so the question on the trading desk thus far has always been like, so why is the market so calm? Um, in my opinion, I think after a period of really strong volatile moves, um, it just seems like the market in general seems to be in wait and see mode, especially as we have a range and a swath of issues that's driven market sentiment this year so far to get clarity on. Um, I think with some marquee events that we've talked about here, like ETH Chappella, um, there's obviously still plenty of known unknowns. And I think with you know the range of issues, with the ongoing back and forth with the U.S. debt ceiling negotiation, uh, inflation pressures, as well as like issues with regional banks, and more recently discussion of market makers pulling back from crypto. I think there are still uh, plenty of price drivers here that can quickly dislocate um, an unexpected market, and I'm keen to see where we go from here. Um, so in my opinion, headline risk still remains high, uh, but as soon as we get clarity on these outstanding issues, I do believe the market ends volatility will soon return. Um, in other notable headlines, on Friday, Gemini announced that DCG missed its $630 million payment. Uh, just as a quick reminder to our listeners, Gemini and DCG have been in an ongoing tussle with Gemini threatening to sue DCG over the repayment of a $900 million loan. Um, per Gemini, it is now considering a forbearance option against DCG to help it avoid default, um, which would provide temporary relief, but only if Gemini believes that DCG will act in good faith here and reach a consensus deal. Um, the market reaction, though, thus far has been surprisingly subdued to this headline. Uh, elsewhere in crypto, looking at price action, Render is continuing its, or its recent bullish move higher with the market focusing uh, on Apple's rumored VR headset product release on June 5th, uh, with some speculating that metaverse and gaming related demand for 3D rendering will also benefit Render. Um, in general, Render has enjoyed a bullish narrative, and I think with large language models, metaverse adoption, and AI's vast compute needs, um, you know, these are some of the commonly cited fundamental reasons underpinning the token's strong performance. And uh, for everyone's favorite token in second order Pepe effects, uh, synthetic bulls should be happy to see that positive price action and synthetics following news that the derivatives liquidity protocol uh, will add support for Pepe perps. Um, the proposal dubbed SIP 2014 would add support for Pepe, Sway, and Blur perps. 
which closed voting on May 20th with 100% of voters in favor. Um, and just for those curious minded, Pepe is trading down 4% in the last week on decent volumes. That, that's holding up decently well. And lastly, to close out this week's interesting bits and bobs, um, Apple added a version of the popular Web3 game Axie Infinity called Axie Infinity Origins to the App Store. Um, while it's a slimmed down version of the original, I believe, it's um, and it's only available, I should note, in select regions to start, Apple allowing this game is a positive for blockchain-enabled games. Um, similarly, Stepin announced that it is the first Web3 app with Apple Pay integration. Users are able to now link their credit cards and debit cards to the app and purchase NFTs. Um, so my take here is that, you know, you know, we're seemingly entering a new phase in an ongoing conversation. Um, and while the App Store's 30% commission still stands, Apple, who's historically been seen as being quite tough on Web3 uh, and crypto-related applications, seems to be signaling an openness to working with these developers, which I think bigger picture seems hugely positive um, just given the App Store's enormous user audience. Uh, that's it for me, Ben. Back to you. Okay, well, thanks, Josh. Yeah, with Stepin and with uh, Axie and Stepin particularly, the, what you pay for in the app is just 30% more expensive. Um, so they are taking their cut, their pound of flesh, as, as Apple are, are very good at. There's a reason they're almost a $3 trillion company. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely constructive that hopefully more can follow them. Also, obviously, Uniswap, had their app approved a few weeks ago as well. So definitely, definitely good to see. Um, Josh, I'm, I'm curious, I guess, what are the, as you're speaking to clients, like what are some of the narratives that clients are, are looking at right now? Is it is it still kind of macro, they're focusing on the debt ceiling? Is it BTC as a kind of hedge against the, the banking pain? Like what, what are some of the things that people are, are talking about? Yeah, I think to this point, and I think from what we're, we're talking with clients on the desk is it's exactly what you mentioned, which is there's a lot of emphasis still on this idea of BTC as a, a perfect or a good hedge against ongoing financial turmoil. So I definitely think that that is one narrative that has really you know, um, gotten a lot of attention. I think in general, everybody understands that, that crypto is still largely a liquidity-driven market, uh, which does require that you know, to a certain extent, um, anything that happens with changes in inflation and the macro picture certainly has implications for crypto moving forward. Um, so I think at this point in time, it seems like what's top of mind for most of our clients um, includes, you know, a conversation around what happens with the debt ceiling and whether or not there's like a prolonged stall in those conversations, as well as what's happening, generally speaking, with regional banks, with commercial real estate. And then, you know, obviously all eyes on inflation. Interesting. And then I guess this is obviously just anecdotal, but you're you're in the Bay Area. Have you been in San Francisco recently? Like, what is that like if you if you have from a commercial real estate perspective? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we have enough time to talk about all the stuff that we're seeing uh, in San Francisco. But uh, no, it, it's interesting. I think that you know some of the data that shows is like, for instance, I think um, there was this notion that uh, cell phone data pre-pandemic downtown is like only a third today of what it was pre-pandemic. Um, I think in general, San Francisco. We, we were just in New York, obviously all together last week. Uh, coming back from New York, the vibe in San Francisco is markedly different. So it is quite quiet. So I think if you see headlines talking about the fact that like, hey, some of the major buildings downtown sold at an 80% discount, um, whether that was a fire sale, I don't think we have clarity there on who the seller was and why they took such a steep discount on that building downtown. Um, but in general, foot traffic is quieter. And I think, you know, the Bay Area, it has is unique in the sense that it has um, a very specific client type, which is tech workers. And tech is obviously a massive beneficiary of the work from home movement. Um, so thus far, it just seems like San Francisco hasn't yet quite come back from a foot traffic and just people in office perspective. But 
you know, these things can quickly change. I think if people start to see innovation, um, you know, that the fact that being together and teams being together drives innovation, then I think we would start to see people coming back into offices. And from there, you would start to expect ancillary services like the the salads, the salad shops that are downtown in the office buildings, the coffee shops, et cetera, like everything to just become a little bit more, I suppose, healthy. Uh, so it's something to watch out for. Um, that answers the question. Nice. So we can we can wait for some more healthy salad places to charge you thirty bucks for a uh, for a salad coming. Uh, thirty bucks, yeah. Last I checked, I went to Whole Foods. It was forty dollars for a plate of food. I'm, you know, so <laughs> <no> pricey. <laughs> awesome. Right. Thank you very much, Josh. Um, so, David, moving on to you. Josh mentioned the the macro side of things, debt ceiling, um, banks, etc. Like, what what are you thinking about at the moment? Yeah, it seems like the U.S. debt ceiling is most topical. I mean. I've said this before, I think that the current situation with the U.S. bank turmoil is still a lot more relevant than the you know, debt ceiling crisis. But certainly, uh, you know, trying to see a resolution to this would at least avert perhaps some of the market volatility. Um, just kind of recap what we've said on this uh, podcast before. You know, it's not entirely clear that if this does get resolved, by the way, that we won't see a, mar a potential liquidity drain out of the market because the U.S. government still needs to refill its uh, treasury general account balance but certainly it seems like there are four potential resolutions uh, at the moment number one of course uh congress and the white house come to some sort of agreement and we avert you know the the standoff that we currently have number two uh something that's been proposed since 2010 that's never really kind of found its way uh into reality is the u.s government could for example mint a one trillion dollar coin that allows it to um, fund itself and effectively monetize uh, some of its expenditures. Uh, we could also see that uh, the White House could invoke the 14th Amendment, which says that, uh, you know, the, the, the status of the U.S. government in terms of its validity uh, needs to actually, uh, which I rather should never be questioned. Uh, and the last one, uh, which also seems like a very unlikely scenario is that we could just borrow with higher coupons, but with a lower face value on our debt. So effectively, investors would be paying a huge premium in order to lend money to the U.S. government, uh, which is a proposal that's kind of come around, but also seems very, very low likelihood. So, I mean, those are the options in front of us at the moment. None of them seem great. I think many people see this as an analog to 2011, more than 2013. Um, but so far, uh, you know, I think most people are pretty complacent about this. Many of us think that, uh, you know, the government is going to come to some sort of agreement by the 11th hour in order to avoid uh, dealing with a, you know, actual default on our debt. Interesting. So can you help educate the, the Brit that hasn't been, hasn't grown up in the U.S.? Let's say they do get this done on day before the, the, the deadline. Does that, does that then mean that we wait for next year and we have the same issue again? Like, what does the path forward looks like? It's uncertain, to be quite honest. I mean, for example, there is a proposal out there uh, that suggests they could actually kick the can down the road and that they could postpone this until March of next year. Um, and in return for that, there needs to be some cut in expenditures, spending. Um, but you know, so far it's been rejected by uh, the by the House Democrats. So, you know, it, it's any proposals actually available. It could be that we actually just raise the debt ceiling. Of course, that would be like the the, the best of all cases. Uh, perhaps I use the term best loosely, but 
you know, there could also be a proposal that just says, you know, we're going to try to, you know, just pay some of the bills so that we can move this slightly back and then deal with it at a later time. So any of it is possible. You know, like some people don't even believe that the X date that uh, has been proposed by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is actually all that firm. Like she suggests that um, June 1st is going to be the most likely X date. But some people believe that we can hold off till uh, the tax receipts on June 15th, for example, uh, we could actually extend that a little bit further. So um, there, there's a lot of unknowns at the moment. Interesting. And earlier on, you said issue a $1 trillion coin. Um, now, I wish I could do that. Can, can you run me through how, how that works? Yeah, effectively, it would be that um, they would mint a $1 trillion coin, as it sounds, and they would deposit that into the Treasury's uh, account at the Fed. And that allows them to pay the bills that they currently have outstanding. And, uh, you know, at the moment, they're taking the government's taking or potentially taking and potentially taking extraordinary measures. Like, for example, if there's nothing that's time sensitive about perhaps paying like these, like the, the, the accounts of uh, the retirement accounts of government employees, for example, they would postpone that. And so that wouldn't be a bill that they could pay now, whereas they would need to pay for Medicaid and Medicare or other things. So like they're, they're trying to determine what the priorities are and try to pay those first. Well, this would effectively be monetizing or just creating money in order to pay for things. Um, so, you know, it's it, it, it's just exactly what it sounds like very potentially money supply inflationary. Yeah, it, 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 it's um, just kind of digesting that it's just to mint a one trillion dollar coin. It sounds slightly crazy. Um, but, uh, but I think just minting and coining, having that in the same sentence just makes it slightly closer to crypto than uh than just issuing new new debt etc um interesting though what, what else are we looking out for obviously we've got debt ceiling anything like economic data earnings um anything else on the crypto side of things that we should be keep, keeping an eye on yeah i think that well connected to kind of the debt ceiling i would say one of the impacts of this has been to see the dollar actually strengthening and it's a kind of a perverse uh, outcome of this entire situation, because you would think that given the situation actually impacts uh, the United States, that you wouldn't necessarily be seeing uh, people have increasing demand for the U.S. dollar or increasing demand for U.S. treasuries. And certainly not all of that is just strictly demand. You know, like I, I think there were a lot of short positioning in U.S. Uh, USD, like um, ahead of the last few weeks. And we saw that some of this move higher in the U.S. dollar it actually has to do with a short squeeze. But it's, you know, interesting because Josh earlier mentioned that actually we've seen uh, Bitcoin, for example, and other crypto assets actually being fairly flat in terms of being, being very range bound over the course of the last few weeks. Um, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. dollar has actually strengthened and we're actually range bound shows you that in terms of relative effects, uh, you know, if. The, the U.S. had remained on its trend, like we, we'd probably be a different place as far as crypto prices are concerned. So I think that, you know, this is one of those strange social behaviors that people tend to have as far as, um, OK, like, you know, traditionally the U.S. dollar, like U.S. treasuries have been the safe haven bet. Like, are they still the safe haven bet when what's going wrong is pertains to the U.S.? Um People still treat it that way, but you know, I, I think it's really odd. On the other hand, we are seeing that traditional, like, kind of hedges like gold 
have been picking up and uh, that's been playing with the, the 2000 level uh, over the last few weeks. It's kind of like it hit it and then kind of retraced. But I think uh, you aren't seeing a lot of people kind of pulling back from that, which shows you that there are still people concerned that if something does happen um, here, people uh, people are expecting that to, to spike up pretty, pretty quickly. Interesting. And what about crypto specifically? And I guess what is, what is the read across? Do we, do we think is Bitcoin going to rally and, and ETH and others fall? Like, how are you thinking about that in terms of the this, this setup for crypto assets specifically? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it was a bit different to see how Bitcoin will play out in this situation compared to what happened during the uh, banking turmoil, banking, you know, regional bank, U.S. banking turmoil back in March, because I think back then, uh, you know, many of the depositors uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, for example, tend to be tech names or tech startups who are already quite amenable to holding Bitcoin. Um, so having an asset that sat outside the traditional financial system was uh, definitely worthwhile to them. And I think some of that kind of does play out here as well, but it's a bit of a different scenario. I, I think it's a bit more nuanced. So I wouldn't necessarily expect the same dynamics to kind of play out exactly like it did back in March. Um, but the fundamentals are there. I think Bitcoin does remain store of value and it, it will kind of support that. Um, but I, I don't know if you know we're going to see this completely be uh, the, the, the maintain the same kind of like hedging properties as it did back uh, back in March. Interesting. So we, we've got another call next week, which should be before the deadline set by Janet Yellen. So unless they, they sort it out this week, which doesn't feel likely from, from what I've been reading on Bloomberg, et cetera, um, we'll, we'll be able to touch upon this again next week. But, uh, but thank you, David. As always, incredible insights. And Greg, moving on to you. So from a trading position, like how are people positioning for this? Are we seeing anything in the flows that, that makes us think it should go one way or the other? Yeah. Um, short answer is no. I think uh, there's a lot of confusion out there. Um, I think as you look across asset classes, there's confusion. You know, one thing that keeps coming up in you know financial press, for instance, is, you know, why is the U.S. equity market rallying in the face of, uh, you know, an impending uh, X date that just gets closer? Um, and I don't think anyone has a really good reason for that. Uh, I do hope that uh, we find some resolution. Uh, in the next week, hopefully before our next call. Um, I am in the camp of if this does come down to the wire or if, you know, God forbid we do default. Um, I personally would expect uh, BTC to trade higher. Um, I do understand David's point in that, um, you know, the SVB situation was slightly different in, you know, they were much closer to the people affected were much closer to the tech um, seen and so they're closer to crypto. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think if we did uh, have some you know terrible situation, you wouldn't need a ton of buy interest to uh, to push BTC considerably higher, uh, especially given kind of the liquidity that we've seen recently. Um, but from a flow standpoint, you know, I'm really afraid that I'm becoming a bit of a broken record here. Uh, as Josh said, you know, we're in an incredibly tight range. And because of that, you know, we're seeing volumes kind of continue to soften across the board. Uh, flows in Bitcoin specifically have been pretty balanced, uh, maybe slightly skewed to the sell side. Uh, ETH conversely has been, you know, balanced, but slightly skewed to the buy side. 
you know, nothing extreme enough to uh, break us out of these ranges one way or another, unfortunately. Uh, on the altcoin side, we have seen some change in flows there. Uh, for people that have tuned in, um, you know, over the past, you know, weeks and months, uh, there's been this constant theme of, you know, flows and altcoins being very one-sided, uh, much better for sale, that is. And now we're actually seeing, starting to see more balanced flows and particular tokens are actually starting to skew to the buy side. Um, so that tells me that some of these assets have gotten to levels that traders are starting to find interesting. And uh, I do think that's a positive sign uh, for the market overall. Fundamentally speaking, uh, ETH continues to look really good to me. Um, you know, this comes up in, in you know, almost every client call. The activation queue is now almost 38 days long. So what that means is if you want to stake your ETH, you have to wait over a month before you start earning rewards. Now, there are ways around that. You can buy liquid staked tokens in the market. And we're seeing that volumes of a lot of these tokens have risen in the past month and their discounts to fair value have narrowed. Uh, you're looking at now maybe 40 to 20 basis point um, discount. You can also wrap tokens. There's a, that's sort of a, a fast track um, uh, way to start earning rewards. But whatever the path, uh, it seems folks are really eager to stake and earn what now uh, currently is a 5.5% you know, plus reward rate. So just fundamentally speaking, uh, things look really good in ETH. I think the question is, you know, why are the fundamentals, you know, as positive as they are, and yet the, the price action, you know, we're still in the, the 1800, 1850 uh, level. Um, and, you know, we really, we don't have a good answer for that. Um, haven't heard a good answer for that. Uh, I think it's likely just, you know, crypto's range bound. And uh, until we break out, given we're such a momentum driven asset class, um, you know, folks aren't really eager to put risk on here. That being said, you know, there are opportunities out there. Uh, Bitcoin June basis periodically has been as wide as 10% annualized. So we're seeing some interest there. Um, and likewise, for those comfortable in DeFi, uh, LP yields are moving up. Uh, you know, one example on the uh, OP chain, the wrapped ETH USDC pools, uh, we, you know, with 20% ranges um, are yielding, you know, 20 plus percent at current volumes. So, you know, there's there's certainly opportunities out there um, as we wait for uh, for price action to, to pick a direction. Perfect. Thank you, Greg. You, uh, you got ahead of me there. I was going to ask you what you should be putting on. So thank you for those two, two, uh, two potential ideas for folks to have a look into. Um, that is a wrap for this week. Thank you for that, Greg. Thank you, David. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, John. Um, and thank you all for dialing in. Um, wishing you the best of the week and we will see you next week. Take care. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.